0: Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 74, A Return to Conquest. Patreon supporters this week, but as always, consider pledging. You can get access to all the episode transcripts. Uh, You can get this secret uh, special kind of history of Bonsko miniseries and some other great stuff. Check it out. Or you can just send a one-time donation if you're feeling generous. So getting straight into it. Last time, dreams of an anti-Ottoman alliance fell apart for the I think we've all lost track of how many times anti-Ottoman alliances have fallen apart, but a lot. Sultan Bayezid obtained a peace agreement with Poland and another with Hungary, as his half-brother Cham finally died, eliminating the risk of a return to civil war. With peace between them and the Ottomans secure, the European powers of the region set to fighting each other and engaging in a good bit of civil war. The civil war in Hungary was short, but the Polish invasion of Moldavia took more than a toll on the unsuccessful Polish army. But Venice was still opposing the Ottomans where possible, and proceeded to fight and lose another war. In the meantime, a Sunni religious uprising in the east created the new Safavid Empire, which will become the main Persian opponent of the Ottomans for much time to come. Ultimately, there is some fighting between the Ottomans and Moldavia and Hungary, but nothing really major occurred. And so we entered this episode with the Ottomans in a sort of uneasy balance. The rising power of the Safavids in the East is of great concern, while the possibility of a greater European alliance against them is still very real. And so let's start off with a good old death. In 1504, the young John Corvinus finally died at the age of 31. He left behind one son, Christopher, who died at the age of 6 the very next year. It's suspected that he was poisoned. With young Christopher, the grand Hunyadi family ends 98 years from the birth of Christopher's great-grandfather, John Hunyadi, the commander who became the scourge of the Ottoman Empire during much of the 15th century. But all that is over now, and the Jagiellian dynasty dominates Central Europe. But that year 1504 brought another, far more momentous death than that which ended the Grand Hunyadi Line. It was that of Stephen the Great. Though before his death, remember, he had been quite sick and sought the best doctors from Venice to aid in his recovery. They had sent a doctor, but Ironically enough, he died the year before Stephen did. Bad luck there. But as Voivoda, technically Stephen wasn't a king, he was only Voivoda of Moldavia, as he lay on his deathbed, there was an uprising by Moldavian boyars, but it was successfully put down in spite of Stephen's inability to really get up and engage with it himself. Eventually, though, Stephen did die, and was buried at Putna Monastery. Again, I can't believe I visited that monastery more than five years ago and had no idea who was buried there. Now I honestly feel the urge to return and contemplate the legacy of its most famous inhabitant. He was succeeded by his 25-year-old son, Bogdan III, who Stephen urged to continue paying tribute to the Ottomans. The Ottomans, for their part, wished to install someone else on the throne, no doubt someone whose father hadn't proved himself an implacable military commander, but it was no use. So now let's take a moment to really contemplate Stephen's legacy. He had ruled Moldavia for 47 years. Through his skill, diplomacy and military cunning, he managed to take a small state on the periphery sandwiched between potential enemies and transform it into a genuine regional power. Today, Moldavia is the poorest country in Europe, divided internally between East and West, Russia and the EU, as well as Romania. So in many ways, the geopolitics of Stephen's time extend into today, today and Moldavia and Moldova share similar challenges. Still, it must be pointed out that Stephen was also a brutal man. He took slaves, encouraged religious persecution, and enacted gruesome punishments on those who wronged him or his state. In battle, his record was 34-2. and He won time and time again against larger foes with ambushes and scorched-earth tactics. In other words, he was a master at fighting against the odds. But beyond these military accomplishments, Moldavian culture also flourished during his reign, despite the many wars and difficult times. Today, his legacy is immense. He's still featured on every single bill of the Moldavian currency, sorry, the Moldovan currency. Uh, It gets hard to switch back and forth between them. But today, in Moldova, he is a national hero. And in the episode, I'm going to include a photo of some Moldovan money, as well as a statue of him in downtown Chisinau. So that's enough about the legacy of Stephen. So who was his son Bogdan? Upon coming to the throne, Bogdan was under no illusions about his situation. He paid tribute to the Ottomans and had fought both with and against Poland. But in the broadest sense, the Tatars, Ottomans and Poles, were all potential enemies. That needed to change if Moldova, Moldavia was to survive. And so Bogdan set about trying to marry the sister of the king of Poland, a logical move which would not only tie him to Poland, and, but also Hungary and Bohemia, because remember, the king of Poland was the brother of the king of Hungary. It took a lot of gifts of money and territory, even a raid on southern Poland, but eventually Bogdan got his bride the territory lost was this bit of southern Poland which Stephen had recently conquered. It was given back, but still, that Polish bride meant a lot to Bogdan and to Moldavia. However, within just two years, the king of Poland and duke of Lithuania, Alexander, died and was succeeded by his brother Sigismund. Yes, somehow there was another brother waiting to be yet another king in the family. Though Bogdan's bride was still the sister of the ruler of Poland and Lithuania, the recent ruler, this new ruler, Sigismund, invalidated the agreement, and Moldavia was once again in the same dangerous position it had found itself in two years previously. Within a short time, Poland and Moldavia were raiding each other, a situation Moldavia could sustain only as long as the Ottomans and Tatars decided not to make trouble. So, Probably not for long. Within two years, between Bogdan taking the throne and the death of Alexander, there was, of course other things going on, a brief war between Austria and Hungary. The only reference I could really find to this war, what happened and why it happened, was, quote, nationalistic tensions between Vladislaus and the Hungarian estates, end quote. So, a little vague, but... Yeah, we can see that there was some tension within Hungary, but now why this brought the Austrians in is honestly unclear. But what we do know is that the Austrians made a quick advance into Hungary and forced the Hungarians to make peace within a year. The 1506 Treaty of Vienna, which ended the conflict, had the Hungarians pay 200,000 guilders and confirmed that the Austrian royal family should inherit the Hungarian crown should Vladislaus die without a legitimate heir similar agreement to what uh, Matthias had had previously. However, literally within months of the agreement, a son was born to the Hungarian king, rendering the agreement more or less meaningless. Shortly after, the son of Austrian Emperor Maximilian himself died of typhoid, leading to a rapid change of fortune for both houses. Suddenly the Hungarians had an heir, and suddenly the Austrians didn't. So, in spite of all these changes and in the invalidation of that initial agreement, there was an interest in binding the dynasties, the Habsburgs and the royal family. I always forget how to pronounce it, but uh, of Poland and Lithuania and Bohemia and Hungary. And so an agreement was made to marry the grandson of the Austrian emperor to Vladislaus's daughter, Anna, as well as Vladislaus's son, Ludwig, to Maximilian's granddaughter, Maria. Basically a double marriage of sons and daughters to grandsons and granddaughters. The Hungarian nobility, however, still harbored strong anti-German feelings. When this Habsburg alliance and double marriage proposal was announced, it triggered an outburst. The nobles declared that foreign rulers did not understand Hungarian traditions and oppressed the Hungarian people, while their locally born rulers, like Matthias, had been glorious and had enhanced Hungary's power and prestige. So when the nobles resolved to never again elect a foreign king, well, it couldn't have sounded great to uh, Vladislaus. but to be fair, they did remain loyal to him and say that, no, 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 we just don't want any foreign kings in the future, but you're fine, which honestly must have felt a big, bit awkward for everyone involved. Shortly afterwards, a new minor political crisis struck Hungary as the state debated whether to join a new anti-Venetian alliance uh, organized by the Pope to curb Venice's growing power in northern Italy. So yes, you did hear that right. Not an anti-Ottoman alliance, but an anti-Venice alliance. Remember, as I just said, uh, Venice was becoming more powerful in northern Italy, and with the papal states existing in central Italy, that was making the Pope very nervous. Ultimately, Hungary didn't involve itself, but the resulting war would last eight years and involve nearly every single European power and sort of a larger fight between... Well, the details aren't that important, but a larger fight between European powers that started with the Pope against Venice. But ultimately, eight years later, when the war is over, nothing much really changed. Still, the Balkans were comparatively calm during these years, as you've probably noticed. Sultan Bayezid II, himself wasn't nearly as aggressive as his father had been. And so without relentless Ottoman expansion, the region was less defined by constant warfare and conflict than it had been for, honestly, centuries. This particular moment of calm also extended to Wallachia, where not much had happened during the 13-year reign of Radu the Great. Obviously, Radu is great not because of Grand Conquest or something, but because of a peaceful and prosperous rule. But died in 1508 and was succeeded by Mihnea Chilrau, son of none other than our old friend Vlad the Impaler. Now, the fact that his name means uh, Mihnea the Bad or Evil should probably give you an impression about his character and how he was viewed relative to his predecessor, the Great. With his ascension as Voivoda of Wallachia, the internal calm the country had enjoyed for 13 years came to an abrupt end. He was extremely unpopular with the local boyars for reasons that a local chronicler writing during this period made very clear. He said, quote, As soon as Macnea began to rule, he at once abandoned his sheep's clothing and plugged up his ears like an asp. He took all the greater boyars captive, worked them hard, cruelly confiscated their property, and even slept with their wives in their presence. He cut off the noses and lips of some, others he hanged, and still others drowned. End quote. So, you can get an idea where the guy's name came from. I mean, Michenea was, like his father, rather brutal, but also virulently anti-Ottoman. And so, unsurprisingly, within a year the boyars obtained Ottoman assistance to overthrow a person both they and the Ottomans detested in equal measure. The brutal ruler fled to Transylvania, where within a year he was assassinated. Ultimately, after he fled, Minea's son Mircea III, Dracul, took control and attempted to kill the boyars who had tried to force his father from power. It didn't last long, and he was replaced by Vlad Chiltanar, son of Vlad Chalagarul, guessing that pronunciation, but if you remember, he had ruled Wallachia from 1481 to 1495. So you can see there's a lot of this kind of revolving door of various uh, Wallachian dynasties. Anyways, within two years, he had allied with Hungary and faced a boyar and Ottoman rebellion himself, which defeated him in battle, killed him, and replaced him with Neagro Basarab, son of Basarab Ce- uh, Tepelush Cheltanar, who had ruled Wallachia before Vlad Chalagaru. So, yeah, again, the throne of Wallachia is just moving between these two families very quickly. And as it's very clear, these years are, a, as I said, kind of a very abrupt end to the 13 years of peace, which Wallachia had enjoyed before, with now just rebellion after rebellion, the Ottomans and the boyars alike getting involved, brutal rulers, change of rulers very quickly, But with uh, Nago Basarab, things finally kind of quiet down again after a few years. But still, this minor chaotic period extended into Moldavia as well, as Bogdan lost a major battle to the Poles on the banks of the Dniester River, forcing him to give up any more ambitions to either exert control over or just sort of have an alliance with Poland. Within that same year, two Tatar invasions also devastated Moldavia, even managing to occupy much of the country and allegedly taking away over 70,000 slaves. Despite their recent conflict, Poland also suffered greatly at the hands of Tatar invasions. And so, after the two had signed a peace treaty, Poland actually sent aid to help Bogdan repel the invaders in 1512. Still, overall, these events showed that there was a real weakening of Wallachia, Moldavia and honestly, Poland during this period, internal fightings, uh, you know, change of rulers very quickly, Tatar invasions, they're invading each other. All of these things together made them weak. And as we've seen, really, they're just lucky that during this period, Bayezid II is not trying to attack or invade. Uh, as we've seen, the Ottomans are only getting involved to kind of install more friendly rulers when it suits them and not to try to invade or exert more influence. But an even worse chaos came to Constantinople on September the 10th, 1509, as a devastating earthquake, estimated to be around 7.2 on the Richter scale, hit the city. It was referred to as the Lesser Judgment Day, which gives you an idea of its devastation. It triggered a tsunami which hit the city and 45 days of aftershocks. Around a 1,000 houses and over a 100 mosques were destroyed, and many thousands killed. The mosques included several of the most prominent in the city, although the Hagia Sophia survived without significant damage, though the plaster, which had been used to cover up the Byzantine mosaics, did crack and fall off in places, revealing the Christian images beneath. Now, Unsurprisingly, the Ottomans weren't feeling particularly belligerent after this devastation, and so a year later in 1510, they renewed the 1503 peace treaty with Venice, which ended their previous war, as well as renewing treaties with Hungary. Still, there was other trouble brewing, as the sons of Bayezid, Selim, the youngest, and Ahmed, the oldest, began jockeying for power, knowing that by now their father was in his 60s and could die at any time and no doubt wanting to avoid the prolonged fighting which had occurred between their father and their uncle three three decades earlier. Now, a quick point about the rather odd system of Ottoman succession at the time. In general, the sons of the sultan were appointed as governors in Anatolia. When the sultan died, the first son to reach Constantinople would succeed him, And so in practice, the proximity of the provinces the sons governed to the capital was a sort of de facto order of succession. Now, of course, the problem here is that these are customs, and so they're kind of open to creative interpretation or even just outright being ignored. Now, Ahmed was the closest to the capital and the eldest son, and so... Although the other son was briefly given a governorship even closer, he was ultimately relocated to Crimea on Ahmed's objection. Selim was attempting to sort of upend this order and place him in a position to succeed his father by asking for a governorship in the Balkans instead of in Anatolia. However, Selim was refused. Though he did eventually succeed, he got his, uh, his appointment in the Balkans, but the compromise is that he was given territory to govern in Serbia, which is even farther from Constantinople than any place he probably would have been placed in Anatolia. In response, Selim chose to stay in the capital instead of going to govern the province he was supposed to govern. This was considered by Bayezid to be extremely provocative. Around this time, the father officially announced that Ahmed was the heir apparent further escalating the tension between the two brothers. Then in 1509, Ahmed won a major victory against the Karamanids and decided to exploit his new, more powerful political situation by marching on Constantinople and forcing his father to abdicate. In response, Selim staged a revolt in Thrace, but was defeated by his father and forced to flee to Crimea himself where the new ruler was his father-in-law. So Selim was married to the daughter of the Crimean Khan. Still, although he had been declared the heir apparent, Bayezid refused to allow Ahmed to enter Constantinople for fear of what his eldest son might do. Honestly, he thought his son might kill him. Then, when Selim and his father were fighting, pro-Shia, remember the Ottomans were Sunni, uh, and pro-Shia, pro-Safavid forces, staged an uprising in Anatolia, which distracted Ahmed for that year. He had to go help put it down. The uprising was successfully put down, but this still soured relations between the Ottomans and the Safavids, though Bayezid did attempt to mend them and avoid more uprisings and conflict on the Ottoman borderlands. Remember, the Ottomans had a fairly substantial Shia population, and he was always afraid that these Shia might... Well, do what happened, lead an uprising in uh, coordination with the Safavids. Uh, This was just a very significant danger on the Ottoman Eastern Front. But anyways, once this particular uprising was taken care of, Ahmed captured Konya, remember a very powerful uh, fortress city in central Anatolia, and once again attempted to march on the capital, but his soldiers refused to back him, believing him not to be capable enough to rule well as sultan. Then Selim re- returned from Crimea with the help of the Janissaries and himself forced his father to abdicate in his favor. Bayezid did so. He abdicated and, within a very short period of time, died. Bayezid had ruled for 31 years following the defeat of his brother Cham. Though his rule did see its share of wars, overall the reign of Bayezid II was comparatively peaceful. And as a sultan, he was known to focus more on domestic politics, culture, and uh, sort of the cultural and intellectual life of the empire. However, for all his intellect, for all Bayezid was respected as a man of letters, he had clearly failed to learn the lessons of his own messy ascension to the throne, and respond by putting in place a more stable system to ensure the Ottoman Empire wouldn't continue to be plagued by civil wars each time. There is a question of succession. But in any case, Selim was now Sultan Salim I, although Ahmed was still alive and active in Anatolia. But within months, his army was defeated, Ahmed was captured, and he was executed. Now, in the last years of Bayezid's reign, his Sipahi cavalry on the Croatian border, sort of ignored the renewed peace treaty between the Ottomans and Hungary and raided into Croatia. Now, when Selim came to the throne, he decided just to throw out this peace treaty entirely. He was more like his grandfather than his father, aggressive and eager to expand the empire. In 1512, he conquered a region of Bosnia and laid siege to the Croatian capital of Knin. It was a major escalation from the small-time raids that had previously defined the Ottoman-Croatian wars. By 1513, a new bond of Croatia was appointed, one that was ready to fight and defend Croatia far more aggressively than his sickly predecessor. However, this was far easier said than done, as recent years had seen the centralizing reforms of Matthias Corvinus fall by the wayside, as Croatia fragmented. This allowed the Ottomans to work with individual nobles within Croatia to sort of divide and conquer. The Ban had to go through extraordinary measures to raise the funds for an army and to challenge the Ottomans. In part, he did this by selling several of his own estates and obtaining financial support from the Pope himself. Ultimately, through his efforts, financing was secured and an army was raised. After this force was put together, a detachment of 7,000 Ottoman cavalry was raiding in Croatian territory when it was confronted by this army. Feeling confident in their superior numbers, the Ottomans attacked and suffered a total defeat, with thousands of their 7,000 killed and captured. Now still, this is a small enough force that the, loss, the losses it take had, uh, took had little impact on the Ottoman force there overall. And this is shown by the fact that the very next year, ten thousand Ottoman soldiers were besieging the Croatian capital once again, though they did again fail to take the city. Ultimately, these incursions signified the really the end of the defense system that had been put in place by Matthias. Uh, Remember, he had sort of made some conquests in Bosnia and set up a series of fortresses, powerful fortresses, along the border, but this system had just fallen apart and the ottomans were now able to raid more or less with impunity occasionally being challenged but in general there wasn't a whole lot stopping them with this being the case and with a younger more belligerent belligerent, uh, sultan on the throne you might expect a major ottoman invasion to be imminent but you'd be wrong so why well not because Salim didn't want to, but because he faced a more serious challenge in the east. Remember, as I alluded to earlier, there were still major concerns about Shia and Safavid forces, who had been recently put down by Ahmed. Salim escalated the situation by declaring the followers of this particular brand of Islam to be heretics, leading the Safavid sultan to accuse him of aggression against fellow Muslims. And so... Selim began a campaign to pacify the region and ensure that no more rebellions would distract him from concerns in the west. His first move here was to execute 40,000 Shia militants and ban the importation of silk from the Safavids. Only then did the real campaign begin. As Selim marched east, the Safavids, unfortunately for them, were invaded by the Uzbeks on their eastern flank, leading their leader to have to resort to a sort of scorched earth policy as he ran off east and dealt with the Uzbeks first. So in practice, the Safavids were facing the worst nightmare of the Ottomans, a kind of east-west two-front war. But luckily for the Safavids, the scorched earth policy worked, at least in part. The combination of having to lead a campaign against fellow Muslims, the difficulty of the terrain, the lack of supplies from the scorched earth policy, all led to serious discontent within Salim's army. The Sultan himself was eager to face the main Safavid force before he had a full-blown mutiny on his hands. When the two armies finally met, the battle had some similarities with previous engagements between the Ottomans and the Ak-Koyunlu Turkmens, in the sense that one side had gunpowder weapons, the Ottomans, and the other side, crucially, did not. The Safavids attempted to move their cavalry around the Ottoman flanks to avoid facing the full brunt of their powerful artillery, but it was no use. The Ottomans could quickly wheel around their cavalry and readjust them, and so the Safavids were devastated by the superior Ottoman weapons and tactics, suffering a crippling defeat. Though further discontent within the Janissaries prevented Selim by pressing his advantage more and invading deeper into Safavid territory, the victory did secure Ottoman dominance in the region and allowed them to annex western Anatolia, i.e. much of Armenia at the time, and northern Mesopotamia, which overall vastly increased Ottoman possessions in the region. And with that, Selim had secured the first major victory of his reign, both securing and expanding his eastern territories and potentially allowing him to focus entirely on the west because... Well, for now, it was very unlikely that the Safavids were going to be able to mount any real attacks against him. Remember, he had already gone through and sort of executed or gotten rid of many potential Safavid kind of uh, adjutants within Ottoman territories. And then now he had a much larger buffer area between him and the Safavid Empire. So these things together made it very unlikely that the Safavids were going to challenge him anytime soon. And so... That's where we're going to end here with the question hanging in the air. Now that the East is secured, what is Selim going to do? You know, we have a young and belligerent Sultan and we have European powers that are well looking hardly able to stop him. And so next time we'll see where Selim will take his Ottoman armies next. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. As always, успех.